0: Some think of it as simply an extreme health code and a law of vengeance, an eye for an eye. How would you describe it, Gail?
1: Well, I've had some real adventures with this because generally when you sit in a Sunday school class, the teacher will say Christ brought a new law and that it is to love your neighbor as yourself, which first shows up in the Bible in Leviticus. So it doesn't quite work that way already. We're in trouble when we say it's a new law because it was kind of the foundation of the law of Moses. But then they'll say that the Jews went from a law of vengeance to a law of forgiveness and love and all of this. And I have actually stood up on a pew, thrust my fist into the air, and shouted, Wrong! I love it. I, I'm love i a little embarrassed to admit that my kids know, you know, they all look at me if they're there, like, you know, oh no, they're doing the Law of Moses thing. My mother's going to stand up on the pew and yell.
2: Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture digging deeper, and having a whole lot of fun,
0: learning about things that affect our lives and our faith.
2: We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations.
0: Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hills, your host for this episode of the Alias Perspectives podcast. My guest today is Gail T. Boyd. Gail was born to Jewish parents in Washington, D.C. She's a convert to the LDS Church and graduated from Brigham Young University with a degree in English. In August 1983, she and her family of seven moved to Israel, intending to live in the Holy Land indefinitely. But they only stayed eight years. She is the author of Days of Awe, Jewish Holy Days, Symbols and Prophecies for Latter-day Saints, which is available for free download on the Mormon Hub website. We'll also put a link to the book in the show notes. Welcome, Gail. Thank you. I'm curious, what gave you the desire and courage to schlep your family to Israel?
1: Well, you know, it's really kind of an interesting story, and in some ways, spiritually, it's too interesting to just share with the general public. I do have a complete Jewish heritage, so I've always been interested. I had been receiving blessings that someday I would live in the Holy Land and figured that the millennium would be a perfect time to do that and never gave that much thought except that during the millennium, everybody else can go to Zion and we'll just go to Jerusalem. Dan Rona came and gave a fireside at our stake, and we invited him over afterwards. And he had an interesting idea. He said, have you ever asked Heavenly Father when you should go? And we said, no, we're going during the millennium. <laughs> when All the rough part is over, and everybody can afford it, and all of that kind of thing. And uh, he said, why don't you? Why don't you find out when he wants you to go? And so we did ask that question, and we left a year later. It was a huge risk, a huge risk, a big sacrifice. We had five children and ended up having one there, our last child. And our youngest was a baby. We didn't have the money to go, and that kind of came miraculously. We left our job and had no employment in Israel at the time Inflation in Israel was 500%. It was a terrible time to be there, really, and yet looking back, it was the very best time for us to be there and change the direction of our family forever. We ended up being international citizens. Our children are all international citizens now. They're third culture kids when they're in America. All of them strive to be abroad as much as they can and were educated in such a way that they really rejoice in diversity and variety and religion and culture, ethnicity, everything. And it turned out to be fabulous, but it was very, very hard. Anyone who's thinking about doing it should really, really
0: investigate
1: that choice.
0: Were your children on board with moving to Israel, or is it something you had to talk them into? We talked to them
1: about it, and they jumped on board and actually very actively participated in getting ready to go. And that commitment is what got us all through really brutal culture shock and going through deprivations of various sorts because of our lack of money. They sold all of their possessions just like we did. They lived in an unfinished basement of some friends for nine months before we left. They were thoroughly committed. And those kids went to Hebrew schools for five years. And that was very, very difficult in this new culture. And then every time we moved after that, they moved not only to a new country, but to a new country school system uh, in foreign languages and all kinds of things. And they just kept doing it and never complained. And someday they may shoot me in my sleep, but I don't think so. They have just been magnificent about the whole thing.
0: I think they're probably quite resilient.
1: They're very resilient.
0: (laughs) You mentioned culture shock. What parts of Israeli culture immediately made you feel like you had stepped into a foreign place? In Israeli culture,
1: when we landed, we found that All of the skills that we had developed to be talented in our own culture were useless. I was quite a good seamstress and couldn't find a fabric store, couldn't find a pattern. We didn't know where to get things. We didn't know how to get information. The money was strange. The language was strange. And of of course, Hebrew is written in a different alphabet. But not only that, they leave out their vowels. So you only get consonants to work from. And so signs that say things important like danger, this beach is mined, or something like that, you can't read and they just become graphics. The money, the, the weights, the foods. My doctor was in an alley and my first appointment was at 10 at night. Things are very strange. <laughs> and then when you get a sense of humor about it and, and you really start to be adventurous is when things start to click. And people are so proud of you for every achievement. So I started in an ulpan class, which everybody goes to, An ulpan is to teach you Hebrew and how to function in this new culture. Because everybody in Israel is an immigrant, unless they're the sons and daughters of immigrants. There is quite a network of support for people who have immigrated. And so ulpan is one of those things where you take he- Hebrew language classes, and the lessons are structured so that It helps you with the culture, too. So lesson one in Hebrew says, this is Mr. Levy. Mr. Levy is from America. In America, Mr. Levy was a big man. People would say, yes, Mr. Levy. No, Mr. Levy. What can we do for you now, Mr. Levy? Mr. Levy immigrated to Israel. Mr. Levy is in Ulpan, Mr. Levy is learning how to say, my name is Mr. Levy. So that's it. That's
0: culture shock. You've uh, lost everything that you've worked your whole life to gain, and you're starting from ground zero, almost like a refugee.
1: We were. I mean, we brought one suitcase per person and one box— We didn't have any furniture or or anything. We just had our clothes. And actually, it's a funny story because I did have one box of household possessions. I had some plastic plates and place settings for six people. And we were living in our friend's basement. She, She taught me a lot of things. But she came down into the basement with a very young couple who had just converted to the church in Florida. And they had followed the Spirit that they should come to Utah. And they had sold everything, and they came with nothing. And this is one of the things that my friend who we lived with, uh, and I have to say her name, Jody Keyes um, Nielsen, because she's an amazing person who prepared me for this whole experience. She said, Gail, I want you to give this couple your box. And I literally threw my body over this box. <laughs> no, I'm not. This is all I have left. This is all I have left of my household, and she said, they came with nothing. The Spirit brought them here, and you're going to give them your box. Don't you understand the law of the harvest? Everything that's in that box will be added to you seven times. And I said, no, I'm not giving them my box. And I really, I, if I had had a weapon, I would have used that, too, to protect this box. And finally, she convinced me about the law of the harvest, and I gave them this box of little starter household things, and it all came true. We got there, they were going to build the BYU Center, they had special representatives from the church in the country, and they pulled them all out, and they all gave me their stuff. And I had seven times the amount of plates, and seven times the amount of spoons, and seven times the amount of hangers, and and everything. It was incredible. That's amazing.
0: You spent eight years in Israel, and after that experience, you wrote this book, Days of Awe. In the prologue, you mention that this book is an attempt to unfold to the view of the Latter-day Saint reader, the symbolism in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as found in the celebration of the Jewish Holy Days. The book contains a history of all the Old Testament feasts, their ancient and current patterns of observance, their prophetic symbolism, and their relevance to each of us as Latter-day Saints. Gail, why do you think there's a need for a book like this?
1: You know, I don't focus on the details of the Law of Moses, the sacrifices and things like that, which are extremely detailed. For me, the symbolism that translates into gospel message to prepare for Christ and the fulfillments of the last days that are still to come are what's important. So for me, if you bring an animal to the temple— and you and the priest lay your hands on the head of that animal to transfer your sins to that animal, which is then slain, that's what's important to me. Not which parts of the animal go to the priest and which parts need to be burned and all of those kinds of things, which also have symbolism. But there are major parts of the Jewish holidays, there are major reasons for being, that testify of everything that Christ does and will do and has done and our religious past, present, and future. It's like a calendar or a map that's laid out for us. And in looking at these symbols, you can tell what's going to come in the future, what's being fulfilled now, and how things were fulfilled in the times of Christ are all described in these holidays. By looking at them, you get a feeling that Heavenly Father laid it all out for us. And if we just look at this map, We can see exactly what he's doing. And he tends to fulfill these things exactly. So on a Jewish holiday, some special religious event will occur. For instance, giving the gold plates to Joseph Smith on the Feast of Trumpets with a message that it's time to awake and arise because this is the time that the wicked are being separated from the righteous. Heavenly Father chose that day on purpose, and we can learn about them by looking at the basic structures of these holy days.
0: Chapter one begins by setting the stage for what you're gonna talk about, some background information. You clear up some misconceptions or add to our knowledge about the Jewish people, their scripture, the complexity of their religion and their history. Let's just talk about one aspect of that. When people think of Jewish law and Jewish history, they think of the law of Moses. There's a lot of misconception about its intent, which I could tell was a source of great frustration for you. Throughout the years, to simplify its common perception and kind of chalkboard screeching terms, some think of it as simply an extreme health code and a law of vengeance, an eye for an eye. How would you describe it, Gail?
1: Well, I've had some real adventures with this, because generally when you sit in a Sunday school class, the teacher will say, Christ brought a new law, and that it is to love your neighbor as yourself, which first shows up in the Bible in Leviticus, so it doesn't quite work that way already. We're in trouble when we say it's a new law, because it was kind of the foundation of the law of Moses. But then they'll say that the Jews went from a law of vengeance to a law of forgiveness and love and all of this. And I have actually stood up on a pew, thrust my fist into the air, and shouted, Wrong! I love it. I, I'm i a little embarrassed to admit that my kids know, you know, they all look at me if they're there like, oh no, they're doing the law of Moses thing. My mother's going to stand up on the pew and yell. It's really appalling to think, it, just sit still and think of who gave the law. It was Jesus Christ. Would he have delivered a law of vengeance to prepare his children to receive his law? it makes no sense at all. The entire law of Moses is to train us to keep the higher law. So it is an ironic priesthood law, and its foundation is sacrifice and repentance. So what you see in the law of Moses when you're talking about what you think of as vengeance is the part of the process of repentance called restitution. If you are a farmer, and I'm a farmer, and I live next door to you, and one day I'm practicing archery and I kill your ox, I need to repent, and my repent cannot be complete unless I restore to you what I've destroyed. The Jews take it a long way. They want to be so sure that they have restored in order to repent. They restore four oxen. If I destroy your eyesight, I need to be your guide from then on and make sure you get everywhere you need to go. If I can't take you to a doctor who can restore your eyesight, I have to make sure that, that it's taken care of to the point that your life is not so diminished. Then it's your responsibility to forgive me. But that part of restitution really shows you there are many Christians who don't understand that we believe that there is a difference in severity in sins. So to many Christians, the sin of stealing a pencil is just the same of murder as murder because all sin takes you away from God. But we believe that the most serious sins are those for which you cannot make restitution. You cannot restore a life that you've taken. You cannot restore stolen virtue. Those are very serious sins because you cannot complete your repentance process by making restitution for what you've damaged, lost, or destroyed. And that follows suit through all of the various sins that you can commit. If you can't make restitution, you've committed a really serious sin. So the entire Law of Moses is structured to protect people, to help them to repent to help them to become closer to God. There's a lot of parts of the law that are legal laws, which many parts were broken during the trial of Christ. To always have a friend in court, to have someone who can defend you, to make sure that the person who is the chief judge is not causing everybody in the room to be biased. There are so many protections in court that were not afforded Christ that are part of the law he wrote. The irony must have been really profound for him during his own trial. Protection of widows, protection of slaves, protection of servants, protection of women, protection of children, protection of property. That's what the law of Moses is about. The dietary laws were meant to separate the Jews. There's no mention of health anywhere. To separate the Jews from the Gentiles and to keep them as a pure people so Christ would have someone to come to who would believe him when he
0: arrived. You mentioned in the book the words mercy, compassion, in reference to the law of Moses. They don't have to give more than the ox. And you said they might have a natural desire to overcompensate, and it's a way of saying it's okay you've compensated for your sin, you can feel peace. Would you characterize it that way? I would.
1: And I think that Jews are very careful. The structure of the law of Moses and trying to live the law of Moses can completely consume you. And so if you live this orthodox lifestyle, you're always mindful of your obedience to God. It it imbues everything. The way you prepare your food, the way you sleep at night, the way you relate to your spouse, everything is imbued with this obedience. Jews tend to protect themselves from breaking commandments. So they stop at 39 lashes in ancient times so that they are sure that they don't go over the 40 that was mandated. They only take 1,000 steps or they take 999 to make sure they don't overdo the 1,000 steps that you're allowed to take on the Sabbath. So they're very careful about doing what's right. And so this making restitution so that you're overdoing it is part of that. We've done something wrong, and we try to restore fourfold so that we've restored
0: we were reading as a family in the New Testament, and there was this phrase that said, he traveled a Sabbath distance. And it was so nice to know that after reading this book that that was a thousand steps. And I could explain to my sons, well, that's probably a pretty close distance then, if it's a Sabbath travel distance.
1: And it's really interesting to see the evidences of this. So Jerusalem was a walled city, and now it's only the old city that's walled. But if you drive out of Jerusalem towards Tel Aviv, and I don't know if this is so visible anymore because there's these huge highways now, but there's a pole It's just a metal pole, like you would put a flag on or something. There's another pole, and there's a wire stretched between them, just a wire, so you would never notice them. And those symbolize the wall. So within the walled city, you don't have to count your steps. So that's the symbolism of the wall, so the Jews can count that as a wall, even though there's no wall there. There's a symbol of a wall to show you that you're in a walled city.
0: Let's go back to that theme of... Exactness in keeping the law and how it applies to numerology of all things and our concept of perfection.
1: So, numerology is an interesting thing that actually Heavenly Father Himself uses. And so, you can't like condemn it and say this is superstition, it's like astrology or something like this, because Heavenly Father uses it all the time. And it it comes from the fact that the Jews had no numbers they used the Hebrew alphabet for numbers. So Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, is also 1. And when my children were in 11th grade and 12th grade and 10th grade, they weren't in grade 10, grade 11, grade 12. They were in Kitah, which is class, Yud Aleph, which is YA. And when you look at Hebrew graves, the dates of death and birth are given in Hebrew letters so that means that every letter has a value so nero the wicked emperor of rome the value of his name is 666 which is the the value of the adversary so it's easy to say that numerology comes just naturally from the fact that every word has a value. So there are lots of ways that Jews in Israel use numerology as just a greeting or just a fact of life. So Moses lived to 120. So if you have a birthday, they say Admea Vesrim, which is to 120. If your name values 18, which is kind of eternal youth, that's really cool. And so the new number values of various words, people know if they've got common numbers that are really cool, they know and they'll comment on those types of things. So we know that the number seven is holy, the number three is used over and over again, the reference to 40 years, 40 days, all of those kinds of things. Any multiple of seven is holy, and all of the holy holidays are arranged according to these holy numbers. So Heavenly Father's playing. So we can't just jump right out of the game. It's important and important that you don't overdo it and go into something like Kabbalah where it becomes a very superstitious type of thing.
0: So you talked about the numbers figuring into the Jewish year and the holidays. How does that work? At
1: Passover, it becomes summertime. There's just two six-month seasons, essentially, in Israel, the rainy season and the dry season. And you can imagine... That if you have six months every year without a drop of rain, that it's a strain on raising crops, on the land, on the everything, on the wildlife. And so that is a time of, of real trepidation. And actually that time in the Jewish holidays is like a wilderness period, that time when there's no rain. So around Passover, the rain ends, and there's a weather phenomenon that shows up about 50 days a year, which is when the winds turn around, and instead of coming from the Mediterranean, they come off the Arabian Desert. The air is very dusty. Even in Jerusalem, the nights are hot, and they're always cool. Otherwise, it feels kind of smoggy, and it's very hot. And it, It's called hamsin or Sharav, depending on which language you're using, and it's very hard on crops, and these, these occur during this wilderness period. After Passover, there are seven weeks. So 7 times 7, 49, and then the 50th day is Pentecost. The Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, is when we have this marker, this stopping place at Mount Sinai where we receive scriptures, prophecy, and the Holy Spirit to guide us through the remainder of the wilderness walk. And that first part, that first 49 days, People in Israel don't get married. They don't celebrate in certain ways because it's a time of trepidation of planting crops and hoping that everything will go okay. So that's one example. But the whole year is divided so that Christ came in the meridian of time. Passover divides the year in half and the fall holidays divide the year in half directly across from each other on a a round calendar.
0: I love this quote that you used in your book. The Greeks worshipped the holiness of beauty, while the Jews worshipped the beauty of holiness. Their holidays or feasts were designed to encourage the beauty of holiness. So there are seven major feasts of the Lord and the Days of Awe. Can you just briefly go over those? Okay. So
1: the seven feasts begin with Passover because that wasn't the beginning of the year. But when Heavenly Father gave the Passover practice to the Israelites who were leaving Egypt, he changed the beginning of the year to the Passover in the spring. Actually, there are two New Years. There's the religious New Year in the spring for the Jews, and then there's the New Year in the fall, the head of the year, which is when they began before, which was a logical time because it was last harvest. So we begin with Passover, and that begins with a one-day holiday, which is the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, and then a seven-day holiday, which is Feast of Unleavened Bread. By remembering the exodus from Egypt, you can see those. There's another high holy day within those that I'm very excited about, and most scholars, most Mormon scholars know nothing about. And I discovered this holiday in kind of a roundabout way. I knew that in the Kirtland Temple, that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were visited by Moses, Elias, Elijah, and Christ, and that they received many keys to the regathering, to the sealing power, and all of these things that were important for the last days, and that this visitation occurred during Passover week. That really made me upset because... Heavenly Father has always fulfilled things right on the exact date, time, whatever, of these Jewish High Holy Days, and during Passover week did not sit well with me. It wasn't Passover, and the church was organized on Passover. It wasn't Passover. It wasn't anything. It was during something. And so as I researched, I found a feast that is no longer even acknowledged called Bikurim. Bikarim is named after honored firstborn son. That's where the name derives. It was supposed to occur on the day after the Sabbath that occurs during Passover. So the rabbis disagreed because the first day of Passover is also a Sabbath. The sacrifice of the pastoral lamb is also a Sabbath. And so we've had three Sabbaths in a row in the Holy Land. Whether they're high holy days or Sabbaths, they're Sabbaths. Now they just kind of look at the day after Passover begins is when you might do that because it's the day after the Passover Sabbath. But so the day after the Sabbath during Passover would always be a Sunday. And this is a wave offering, and you can't use anything from your new crops until this wave offering is offered. This wave offering of grain comes from a little field that's planted next to the temple by the priests, and you can't water it. You can't weed it. You can't do anything to it. You can't give it fertilizer. It has to grow up unto itself completely without any help. And then the high priests go down into this little field, and people come, and with their common consent, they choose a sheaf of grain that they think is perfect. And they separate that and tie it off with a flaxen cord, harvest it and take it to the temple and wave it as an offering, And it guarantees a perfect harvest for the rest of the year. That wave offering was offered as Christ was resurrected. And so that's when Elijah came and gave us the sealing power, is on Bikurim, when this wave offering was given. We can't have a perfect harvest of souls without sealing everyone together. And so then I was really happy.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love that. Obviously, each of these holidays is ripe with symbolism, That ties to, sometimes, things that are going on in the Restoration. But since we're in April, it's fitting that we talk about the feasts of Passover and Unleavened Bread. You indicated that Passover was not always celebrated because of spiritual carelessness and then the turmoil and controversy in the 200 years leading up to the birth of Christ. And that comes back to the Greeks conquering the Jewish people, and we had all these kind of different sects breaking off, deciding how much they were going to assimilate in Greek culture and how much they were going to keep themselves apart, becoming more fractured. But by the time the Last Supper occurred, the basic pattern of the Passover meal was in place. What is the basic pattern? So I give
1: the basic pattern in my book. In every Passover meal, there is a plate called the Seder plate. The Passover ritual, which is practiced in the home, is a meal with a ritual at the beginning and at the end of the meal. And so this plate has symbolic foods. And the foods symbolize various things that have to do with slavery in Egypt and deliverance. The whole Passover feast revolves around redemption and deliverance. The Messiah symbolism is just rife. In the Passover. And as a matter of fact, the basic parts of the Passover are really describing these aspects of slavery and redemption, pointing to a Messiah to come. And there are symbolic foods that represent him. The most profound is what we call the afikomen, which is a Greek word meaning thing you eat after dinner. That's really exciting, isn't it? (laughs) The afikomen is a piece of unleavened bread, and it has to be pierced and striped to keep it from rising. It is in an envelope with a group of three pieces of bread. It's the centerpiece, so it would represent the Aaronic priesthood if you were to go, Melchizedek priesthood, Aaronic priesthood, lay person, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You could do it that way, or you could do the Godhead. That middle piece is the piece that you take. You break, you bless, you bury, essentially, symbolically bury, and resurrect and then partake of it again. And that represents Messiah, and everybody has to partake of it. All Christ had to do was say, you've been doing this looking forward to Messiah, now do it in remembrance of me. In the middle of the no rain period, we have that gathering at Mount Sinai where we receive scripture and prophecy and spirit to help us on our walk. Then in the fall, all of the holidays are second coming holidays. They're the coming of the Messiah holidays. For us, second coming. For the Jews, first coming. But they all represent final judgment, the coming of the Lord, and all of us being approved and having our names written in the book of life. So you start with the Feast of Trumpets, which is awake, arise, and gather. Now we're separating the righteous from the wicked. May your name be written in the book of life. We have a period of repentance and when you were talking about days of awe there's a period of repentance of 10 days that is what they call the days of awe because they are awe inspired by the grace and loving nature of god and by the responsibility of repenting and then it culminates in yom kippur the day of atonement which when the temple was still stood was full of blood atonement. Blood was sprinkled everywhere. It was the only time the priest went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood on the curtains that separated. Just blood everywhere. The scapegoat taking our sins. And then after that, there's a wonderful holiday, which is one of my favorites, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is just a joy to celebrate, especially in in Israel. And that's when we, we have these temporary little little abodes that we construct that represent our little huts in the wilderness, but also we construct them because we need no protection. Heavenly Father's our protector. And the ceilings in these little huts, they are supposed to be flimsy. You have to leave 10 inches between the branches that go over the top of these huts so that you can see the Messiah when he comes, so you can pray for rain. There's a lot coming down from above. We do a lot about the tabernacle of God. We make hosanna shout circuits around the altar in the temple. We wave palm leaves. We have offerings from the flora of the Holy Land, and it's the coming of the Messiah. And a lot of these fulfillments, all of the things that Christ did, his birth, his death, his crucifixion, everything is represented in the spring holidays. Everything about the second coming is in the fall.
0: So you mentioned that you've noticed the Jewish holidays coordinate to significant events, and you put forth a theory that I have heard before, that the Last Supper was conducted on Wednesday rather than Thursday, which we traditionally have thought. Why would that be important? Christ and the
1: Essenes and the Nazarenes, who were Christ's followers, were still following the holiday in the way that it was originally given by Christ, who gave the law of Moses. And that is one day of sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Pharisaic Jews in Jerusalem and the Sadducees had already contracted the holiday, so they were only celebrating it for a week. Those Essenes and those followers of Christ would have followed the way it was given. I use the research from the Center for Nazarene Judaism, and the Nazarene Jews are very interesting. There's about a quarter of a million of them. They lead an Orthodox Jewish lifestyle, but they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And their research, which has been very thorough, shows that there were no Friday Passovers in the 20 years surrounding Christ's death. The schedule wouldn't have worked out anyway because there were no Friday Passovers, even if the Pharisees were on the same schedule as Christ. Christ had the Last Supper on Wednesday. He was crucified on Thursday, taken down for the High Holy Day, as John says, for this Sabbath was an holy day of the Passover, which began Thursday evening. And he was in the tomb three days and three nights, completely. So Good Friday should be Good Thursday. In my online version of the book, that uh, Days of Awe, which is available for free from Mormon Hub, I include a treatise by Richard Scott defending the idea of a Thursday crucifixion. And he uses the timing also from the Book of Mormon where they really did have three days of darkness. And so he goes to great lengths to prove that it had to be a Thursday crucifixion, not a Friday crucifixion. There are many of us who feel that way.
0: I just love this book, Gail. It is easy to read. It's interesting. It gives insights to things that may have seemed common before, but you get a little bit more depth. You tell some funny stories that we don't have time right now to share. Can you tell us about the treasures that you assembled that comprise the last half of your book? This book is
1: light. L-I-T-E. It's not a scholarly read. It's meant to be entertaining and fun and to increase your testimony. When I took this to Millennial Press, they said, take out all the footnotes and make this for a general audience. And I said, but I've done all this research. And they said, that's fine but everybody should be able to read it. And so don't think that you're going to be sitting down and reading something about all these Jewish sacrifices and everything. This is a fun book to read, and it's very enlightening, and it really gives you warm fuzzies because of all the new things you're learning and the kinship that you feel with your ancient ancestors when you're done. So the end of the book, and still available in this free download online, has family home evenings you can do on the various Jewish holidays. And I've added Purim and Hanukkah, which are not high holy days. I've given you everything you need to do a Passover with your family, with your ward, or as a presentation. And with the family home evenings on the other holidays, you can work those into a Relief Society meeting, anything you want. There's recipes. There's stories, there's all kinds of things, activities for you and your children that you can do to make these things come alive. Don't think, oh, I don't feel like reading the scholarly thing on the Jews and and prophecy and all of that kind of thing, because this is a fun read, and it's got all kinds of fun things to do in it.
0: It is fun. Just to sum up, in five sentences or less, can you tell listeners what you hope they get from reading this book? What
1: I got from researching these things, and many of them were huge surprises to me, wonderful surprises, is that Heavenly Father figured this all out from the beginning. And he put it all together in this plan and in this calendar that makes a lot of sense, and he's following it. And all of the meanings reinforce each other, and it brings us together with our ancient ancestors as if they were our neighbors. We don't need to think of them anymore as being in this culture so different from ours, feeling things that are so different from what we feel, when we see that the reasons why they participated in this, and if they follow through on these things, we're all going to be in the same place together, with the same understanding. And that Heavenly Father is so patient. I mean, these things take thousands of years, and yet they all fit together in this handy little calendar that we can all participate in. It really brings you into a kinship with your Old Testament ancestors.
0: Thank you, Gail. I really enjoyed visiting with you.
2: Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. We often, though, get confused, though, because we've heard lots of times, well, the law went away, or they couldn't do it, so God took it away. He doesn't do that. So the law is still there, and but what changes over time is, is what we might call tactics or methods for carrying out the law, ways of enacting the law. That changes all the time, and that can be shown easily by history. But the laws of God remain. Think of it I sometimes with my students, Will show them how silly it sounds to substitute the law of chastity, right? So if we told the same story we tell with consecration, but using chastity, it would go like this. God gave the law of chastity, but the early saints had a hard time living it. So he re- rescinded it, gave them a lower <laughs> law, right? Sorry, I gave you too much there. I'll give you a less we'll back law. Off. Yeah. It sounds silly that way. It almost sounds like God made a mistake. Yeah. And that's not what happens. Um, uh, Rather, he gives a law, and then the saints get to act on it using their agency.
0: LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices.